For over a decade, LifePoint Church has been serious about our call to help people connect with God. That mission has kept us focused and helped us to effectively share the message of Christ. Thousands of lives have been changed, marriages have been healed, addictions have been broken, and people have found hope, freedom, and forgiveness through Jesus. As we look to the past, amazed at what God has done, we look expectantly to our future, believing that God has far more to do in us and through us as a people, as a church, and with our future. We are unfinished. All right, welcome. How's everybody doing today? Well, thank you so much for being here. Wasn't that a powerful, powerful story? Well, today we start this second week in a really big journey in the life of our church. One, I think, is going to change our church, and it's going to change a lot of people's lives. And today you're going to get to hear from someone who is a great friend of our church, a great friend of mine, someone who has watched us take a, a, a small church with a big vision and watched through the years how God has used that. And also someone that is one of the best strategic and visionary thinkers that I know. Her name is Julie Bullock Earp. She just added that last name three weeks ago. So she is a newlywed. So congratulations. <laughs> but I'm excited for you uh, to hear for this uh, next part of Unfinished from our friend, Julie. Thank you, Donnie. Well, it is so wonderful to be here with you. Um, I feel like an honorary life pointer if I'm allowed to say that. Do you call yourselves life pointers, I think? Okay, okay. I feel like an honorary member of the family, being friends with so many of the staff. And whether you're joining us um, on the screen, online, any of our locations, um, just want to encourage you that um, this work that you are doing, reaching your communities, is just inspiring. Um, I don't live in the Raleigh area. I am a part of a church in the Tulsa. Oklahoma area, but have been connected with LifePoint for the last several years and just in awe at everything that God continues to do here. So it is amazing, uh, this journey that you're on. I'd love to pray for us as we get started, and then we are going to jump into week two of this unfinished journey. Heavenly Father, we are so continually humbled by the things that you do, God. We thank you for the story we just heard. We thank you for the stories that are yet to come, and God, we thank you for the stories that are present that we may never hear, but that you are creating um, even among us, God, and you're allowing to happen. And God, we just thank you even right now for bringing each and every person here today, God, that you will continue to work in each one of our lives, that we are never finished being changed by you, God, that we are never finished being impacted by your word, being impacted by your people. And God, would you just open up our hearts for what you and only you would have to say to us today, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, God. May you do a work in every single one of us in a way that only you can. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as Donnie mentioned, we are in week two of a five-week series called Unfinished. And so last week, if you were with us, Donnie talked about what does it mean to be unfinished and what is this unfinished journey that we are on about. And then in weeks two, three, four, and five, we will be taking a look each week at a character in scripture who is unfinished. 
And so today we're taking a look at the life of Abraham and we're talking about this notion of unfinished trust. And so if you are potentially joining us for the first week or if you just need a refresher because you've slept seven times uh, or maybe less since the last time you were in church, I want to remind us if you want to open up your Bibles. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand at any of our locations and Usher will bring one to you. And I'd love for us um, to be reading aloud the uh, Philippians Three, Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11, um, that is our unfinished theme verse. So I will read it to us as we meditate on it together. Find it on the screen. Paul writes this to one of the early churches in the city at Philippi, and he's thanking them for what they're doing in Christ. He says this, he says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And then he says this in verse 6. This is our theme verse for this unfinished journey. Paul says, And I am certain that God who began the good work in you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Paul continues on later on in that passage. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding, for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless until the day of Christ's return. And he finishes with this. He says, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. See, this unfinished journey, as we even just heard on that video, the unfinished journey is both about what God is doing through us, and it's also about what God is doing and will do in us. And so if you missed last week or you need a refresher, unfinished is about three things. It's about our un we are unfinished as a people. And that is about what we do around here, all of our locations, every single week connecting more people to God. And by the way, I say we a lot. I hope that doesn't bother you. I really feel a part of you. So I say we, and you might think she doesn't live here. But allow me if you would. Um, I feel so much a part of your mission and we love to participate in it. Uh, we are an unfinished people because we have more connecting people with God to do as Joan even just shared on her story, there are so many people yet in all of our communities um, around the triangle that still need to be reached. Secondly, we are an unfinished church. And this is about, as you'll find more in your booklet about this, that an unfinished church means all of our locations going to the next level in building bridges to our communities. And the third thing is unfinished future. And our unfinished future is about both what we're doing locally to plant more locations here locally, but also in Ecuador and in Haiti around the world. And something particularly passionate that I know uh, touches the heart of so many at LifePoint is the new LifePoint Adoption Fund that's going to be created through this unfinished initiative. And so our unfinished initiative is about what God's going to do through us, and yet it's also about what God will do in us because the primary goal of unfinished is 100% engagement. Say 100% engagement. So that means every single one of us, so much so that even the dollar goal of unfinished, if someone came in here right now and said, I, I'm so excited about this, I want to take care of the entire dollar goal of unfinished, that is the secondary goal, and we would still do unfinished because God has more to do in us and through us. So to start today, I'd love to um, 
I'd love for us to be looking at a couple of different things. Firstly, I'd love for you to open up your unfinished booklet to page 30. And if you don't have an unfinished booklet, if either it's your first week with us, or if you happen to misplace yours, you can raise your hand at any of our locations and an usher will bring one to you. If you happen to be watching online, you can go to weareinfinished.com and you can download it there as well. So go ahead if you can, open up to page 30. As Donnie made us all promise last week, he made us promise not to flip through your book other than the page. So I won't make you promise that pledge again, but we're going to do the honor system. Go straight to page 30 where we are going to take our week two notes. Now, as we get started, uh, I want to share a quick story with you. It'll not only let you know a little window into my uh, life, but it's also very relevant to our topic for today. Uh, back in my sophomore year in college, I went to college at Wheaton College in Chicago. And back in my sophomore year, some 17, 18 years ago, I was uh, dating a gentleman at the time, not my wonderful husband that I'm married to now, but a gentleman at the time um, that sophomore year. And I was going over to his parents' house for the first time for dinner. Now, any of you who might remember going maybe over to the in-laws' house for the first time or to a home for dinner that you might have been kind of nervous about, you always want to make sure it's a priority if they have cooked that you eat everything on your plate or else it might be insulting to them. Well, most normal dinners are served in one of two ways. They're either served family style where you have the different portions, the bowls of food in the center of the table, and you can portion out your own portions onto your plate. Or secondly, they're served buffet style, where you have the kitchen island or the buffet or something where you can, again, take your own portions. Now, for whatever reason, possibly because this was an eight-member family and there might have been some rationing going on, uh, all of our place settings when uh, our plates were already portioned for us which makes someone who doesn't really eat a lot of meat and vegetables and eats a lot of sweets and carbs very nervous. When I see on my place setting here a huge chicken breast, there is a bowl of uh, baked beans, there's a bowl of green beans, I've got a dinner salad, a dinner roll, there is probably some asparagus. And I'm looking at all of this thinking, I don't even know how I'm going to get started on this. First of all, I don't even like baked beans. I don't know how I'm going to get started on those. And there's this huge chicken breast. I don't eat a lot of meat, although I did marry a beef cattle rancher. We'll put that together later. Um, but there is all of this food, and I know where I've got to start, and it's these baked beans because I, I don't even like them. So I get started on these baked beans. I'm going over here to the chicken breast. I go over here to the dinner salad. I go back to the baked beans. And I'm just about done with this bowl of baked beans. And the gentleman's father, who's a big intimidating attorney in town, and no offense to any attorneys in the room, but sometimes you can kind of be a little intimidating and gruff. No offense. And I look across at his father, who's kind of a stern man, and he says, were you going to leave any for us? Apparently, that bowl of baked beans was the entire eight-member family's bowl of baked beans for whatever reason. It was an interesting night for a couple of reasons, and I will just leave it right there. <clears throat> I share that story with you, um, not only as a nice self-deprecating story, but there's a greater point to it. That night, I was so focused on my own place setting. Literally, I was so nervous. I, had I even looked away from my own place setting once, I would have noticed that none of the other seven people at the table had a massive bowl of baked beans to the left of their plate. But I didn't. I was completely focused on my own sphere. 
Now, this topic of generosity is sometimes like that for us. It's, some, it's kind of like uh, politics and uh, money and religion. You don't talk about it at a party, and you don't talk about what you give or how do you do it in a way that's appropriate and that's not awkward and doesn't make people feel strange and doesn't kick somebody out the doors of a church. And so sometimes we just don't talk about it at all, and sometimes we don't allow God to let our story impact others or to let other people's stories impact us. And the amazing thing about this unfinished initiative, even the story we heard today, is that God really does want us to look at the place settings of one another. He really does. And there's a right way to do it. And in fact, he did it all through scripture. He did it even in some non-financial ways. And we're going to look at a character tonight. And this is not per se a giving story, but there is a story of trust in the character of Abraham that absolutely has everything to do with our generosity. And so I want to invite you today, while you might be someone whose stomach kind of tenses up when, you know, we talk about giving or money or anything, just let, well, don't let it go, but just, you know, kind of uh, let that go for today. And would you open up yourself to let someone else see your place setting potentially and for you to maybe see someone else's from the Word of God? Does that sound like a plan? Okay. All right. Well, let's do this. What I'd like to do, um, I'd like for us to open up to Genesis 12, if you can, uh, if you have a Bible or it's going to be on the screen. Genesis 12 is where Abraham's story begins. And actually, in Genesis 11 is a precursor to what we're going to look at in Genesis 12. Now, what happened in Genesis 11? Genesis 11 was the Tower of Babel. And this was a time when uh, people were really rebelling from God. And they were worshiping idols. It was not, not a good time. It was a very dark time spiritually. And in fact, there was only one line of God that was left, one family line. It was called the line of Shem. And in the line of Shem, there was one last person at the bottom that was following God and not worshiping idols. And that person's name was Terah. And Terah was, the, the, the Abraham was the son of Terah. If you're following all of that, I know lineage in the Bible gets confusing. And Abraham was childless. Why? Because his wife, Sarah, was barren. She was not able to have children. And so here we are in Genesis 11, this very dark time. Everyone is rebelling, uh, rebelling from the Lord. There's all these false idols being worshipped, false gods. And then there is um, potentially one family line of God, and yet it can't be reproduced. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis 12 when God says this to Abraham. And by the way, so it doesn't confuse you in your Bibles, it says Abram. Abram's name was changed to Abraham. I believe it's in chapter 17, so it was later on. So don't get confused. It's the same guy, but we're referring to him here as Abram because God had not yet changed his name. So in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, says this, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, let me pause here for a minute. Let's think about what God is asking Abram or Abraham to do. He's asking him to leave his country. He's asking him to leave his, his, his father, his family, maybe only to take his wife. He's asking him to leave the people that he's comfortable with. He's literally asking him to trust God. And, and Abram says, where are we going? God says, I'm not telling you, just trust me to the land. I will show you, but I need you to leave everything behind. Why did he do that? 
He wanted there to be nothing else that Abraham or Abram could hold on to besides the promises of God. Have any of us ever been in that situation where you literally feel that there's nothing earthly you can possibly hold on to except the promises of God, which is, of course, anything but earthly? And yet in the times when earthly things are abundant and earthly things are around and we're not clinging to no hope, there's plenty of earthly hopes, it sometimes is harder to trust in God and to leave what we have behind. While Abram was childless, he wasn't wealthless. He wasn't friendless. He had many things. He had people and a country and a family. And God asked him to leave all of those things to go, to trust him and to follow him. Abraham's story is very interesting. There's lots of different parts to it. We could do 18 sermons on Abraham, but Donnie has only given us one. And so we will, we will, we will uh, be studying a different amazing character next week. So thank you for this challenge of, uh, of packing this uh, character into one week. Let me tell you two other points in Abraham's life besides this initial call. There was a point in Abraham's life where he tried to take a shortcut. So let me tell you, in, in uh, Genesis 12, Abraham was 75 years old. Now, I don't know about you, but at 75 years old, you might think you're finished in terms of, not in terms of life, but in terms of your ability to have a child. He had not yet had a child, and his wife was barren, and the Lord said he would make him a great nation with a lot of descendants. Do you think he believed God in that? He was 75 years old, and yet God said, I will make you a great nation. Well, a few chapters later, I think Abraham was 85 or 86, Abraham decided he was tired of waiting on God and took a shortcut. And so is actually, strangely enough, his wife Sarah's idea, figured this one out, their servant maid, he said, why don't you, she said, why don't you sleep with our servant maid because she can have children, and then you will have a son. And so he did. And he slept with Hagar, the servant maid, and Ishmael, that son, was born. And, and God said, that's not what I told you to do. I said, I would give you a son with your wife, Sarah. And yet Abraham tried to take a shortcut. Now, we, have, we serve a God of grace, and God redeemed that situation, and God forgave Abraham, and he gave him another chance. And he said, Abraham, I need you to trust me. I have a plan for you. I'm going to provide for you, and I want you to follow me. And so he did. And at age 99... God finally gave him a son through Sarah, and it was Isaac. And in Genesis 22, we find a very heart-wrenching story where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. In fact, he goes up to the mountain. This is a precursor to the gospel of Jesus because he goes up to Mount Moriah, which is actually in the same region where Jesus was crucified, and God asks Abraham to sacrifice on the altar his one son that he waited 99 years for. Now, how fair is that? What sense does that make? Why did God do that? He wanted Abraham to trust him. And even when he had a son, which could be deemed as an earthly thing and yet also a heavenly thing, even that he said, Abraham, I don't want you to get comfortable with something you've been given. I still want you to trust me. Will you? And Abraham did. And so God honored that and provided a ram that was in the bushes to sacrifice at the very last minute so that Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son. When God asks us to trust him, he's not asking to put a safety net underneath us. When he asks us to really trust him and go into places we've never been before, to truly acknowledge that we are not yet finished in Christ, <coughs> he wants us to go to a place where we have to depend on him. And that's what unfinished is all about. See, what I love about this whole initiative is that this notion of being unfinished, 
it kind of goes against the fibers in our being as humans, doesn't it? We kind of like to have our situation figured out. We kind of like to know that we have things under control. Some of us in the room kind of like our spreadsheets. And when it comes to giving or generosity or even time and planning, we kind of like to know that it all fits. And unfinished, as even Joan shared in her story with her bathroom remodel, unfinished kind of messes that up. See, God is wanting us to go to a place where we must rely upon him. I want to share with you a story that I've never shared out loud before. All teaching and preaching coaches would tell you never to do this. I was sharing this with Donnie earlier that um, you should always practice a story first before you share it with a crowd, but I really feel that God's asking me to share it. So I hope you'll have some grace with me today. This was about um, a year ago last April. I was traveling in Milwaukee um, for work. And I had just gotten out of a meeting in the evening, and there were four missed calls on my phone from my best friend, Lindsay, back in Tulsa. And Lindsay's not that kind of friend that just calls you just to chat. She always calls with a purpose. And so uh, the fact that there were four missed calls from her alarmed me quite a bit. So as I got out of that meeting, I called her right away, and I found out that her husband, Eric, of nine years, had suddenly gone into the hospital with pancreatitis. Now, pancreatitis is one of those conditions that some can heal from very easily in that it's not a major condition. And yet others, it can become very serious, cause organ failure, and eventually become fatal. Well, without going into details, very quickly across the course of just a few hours, Eric's condition had become very serious to the point of organ failure. And Lindsay was very scared, and she said, would you please come home? Now, Lindsay doesn't have very much family. Her dad actually committed suicide when she was 16, and her mom has been in and out of alcoholic rehabilitation facilities, and her brother is 10 years younger than her, and so while he's a wonderful person, she doesn't have a lot of strong figures in her life other than some of her friends. And so I would do anything in the world for my best friend, but I too was scared. So I got on the first flight back to Tulsa, and um, within a matter of eight, nine hours after we got there, Eric passed away. And I will never forget as long as I live just the sting and the shock of that moment and how quickly it happened and feeling completely helpless and completely hopeless and that there is any of you, many of you in the, in, in the, within the sound of my voice have probably been through grief yourself or walked alongside someone in grief. And in that moment, all you want to do is you want to fix it and you want to make it better and that is the one thing you can't do. Can't bring that person back. We cried on the floor of the hospital room for at least three or four hours and just couldn't move. And finally, it became time where we needed to leave, and we needed to leave the eighth floor of St. John's Hospital in Tulsa and go back downstairs. And I remember when we finally encouraged Lindsay to get up off of the floor and walk towards the elevator. And she did. She took a few steps towards the elevator, and then she just collapsed right before the elevator. And she said, I'm finished. She said, I can't leave this floor because Eric is here. And if I leave, it will really be over. And I can't leave him. And we cried with her there another hour. And I will never forget this moment. And we knew what we had to do. And there was this moment that has since, as we look back 18 months later, been such a defining moment in my best friend's life and in her faith. And there was this moment where we prayed and we said, God, we thank you that Eric is no longer on this floor. 
that he has ascended into heaven. He has, he has been somebody that his spirit is now with you in heaven and that his body is no longer with us. And God, that you would give us strength to be able to go off of this eighth floor, down the elevator, and out to whatever life you would have for Lindsay. And I'll never forget that moment when she had said four hours ago that she was finished, that she got up, she got in the elevator, and she went downstairs, and she went out to start whatever life was going to be ahead of her. She said, I'm not finished. I'm not done. God has more for me. And I know there's some of you within the sound of my voice that you have a story like that. It might even be ten times more severe than what I just shared with you. You might be going through a valley right now, whether it is financial, health-wise, relational-wise, where you feel like you just want to say sometimes that you're finished. You might be approaching a season of your life where you say, God, I, I don't know that you have much for me. I'm just, I'm crippled by this circumstance. I'm crippled by this situation. Or sometimes it's not a situation of despair. Sometimes it's a situation of apathy or complacency. Maybe there's nothing devastating in your life, but you're just in this season of, God, I think I've arrived. There's nothing else for me. The very thing that God wants us to be is unfinished. Paul says, until the day that Christ Jesus comes, we are not finished. Whether that means you're going through a dark valley or whether that means you are in, on a complacent mountaintop, God wants to shake you. He wants to break you. He wants you to get off of that eighth floor that you are on, and he wants you to go into a life that he has for you. Whatever circumstance is crippling you from getting up off that floor, or maybe you don't even realize that you are on a floor of complacency and haven't been challenged by the Lord to a big step in a long time. Abraham was living a comfortable life. He was 75 years old and was childless, but he had friends, he had family, he was living a comfortable life, and God needed to shake him. He needed to make him into a great nation. He needed him to take a hold of the promises, promises that seemed to the world, by the way, pretty impossible. Pretty impossible that at age 99 that you would still have a child from your wife who couldn't have children. But God said, trust me. He said, go. And Abram went. He was unfinished. There's a passage that Donnie read to us last week, and I want us to reread it today because it is so central to everything that we're talking about in this series. It comes from Paul's letter to the early church at Colossae. And here's what's interesting about this particular early church. This letter was written at a time in Paul's ministry when some of the people there had heard about Jesus firsthand, but most had not. It was a generation and a half kind of past. And so there were still a few witnesses, a few eyewitnesses of Jesus, but most were hearing his ministry secondhand. And so there were lots of heresies going on, lots of untruths and mistruths about who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what it meant to follow Jesus. And so this particular letter of Colossians that Paul is writing, he specifically wrote it to set the record straight about who Jesus is. And he says this, beginning in verse 15 in chapter 1, he says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as the thrones, the kingdoms, the rulers, the authorities in the unseen world. 
Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now, why is that so significant? When we approach a season like unfinished, when we approach a spiritual challenge, where we're being asked in an area of faith so difficult sometimes as our generosity. And by the way, if generosity isn't difficult for you, then you might not be taking an unfinished step of faith. If you're like me and you've been journeying with the Lord for a good bit of time, sometimes we think we've arrived in certain areas of our life. We think we're finished. And yet God has more for us in that area. And so often we approach a season like unfinished and we say to ourselves, okay, well, you know, what can I afford to give? Or, you know, what can I, um, what, what can I do in this season after all of these other things that are already decided, all of these other things that are already finished, they're settled issues. And we say, well, what can I, what can I afford to give? That's a finished question. That's not an unfinished question. How many of us, when we sat at the closing table of our house, said to our spouse or said to our friends, said, okay, honey, we can buy this house, but if we do, what'd you say? Some things are going to have to change. Why'd you say that? Because the decision you made to buy that house or to send that child to college or to buy that car, whatever decision that you made that was so first that it drove everything else, it caused everything else to change. That's what God wants unfinished to be. That's what he wants our faith to be. That's what he wants our generosity to be. Do you know why I love that Donnie said that that 100% engagement is our goal? Because engagement drives everything else. Faith drives generosity. It drives serving. It drives all the steps that we take. It drives evangelism. And so when we think about Putting Christ first in our giving, that is a step of faith that requires that all things are by him, to him, through him, and for him. Just like Paul says, is that how we give? Do we give in such a way that when we fill this out in a few weeks, we say, okay, honey, we can make this commitment. But if we do, some things are going to have to change. That's exactly what God wants. That's exactly what he wants. He wants our faith to be so unfinished. He wants that step of us getting off of that eighth floor to be so unbelievable to the world that we would be able to do it for us to go into the world to do what he would have to call us like Abraham to leave our country, leave our father, do exactly what God is asking us to do in such a way that all things are by him, to him, through him, and for him. And to say, okay, if I do this, some things are gonna have to change. Why? Because you're not finished. He wants them to change. He doesn't want that spreadsheet to stay the same. He doesn't want the time in your week to stay the same. He doesn't want your prayer life to stay the same. He doesn't want the fact that you and your spouse don't talk about giving and one of you writes a check and the other one doesn't. He wants that to change. He wants this unfinished journey to prompt in us and spark in us a leaving of whatever eighth floor we are on, wherever we feel stuck, wherever we feel defeated, wherever we feel like God has left us, that God has given us a situation that is different than someone else's situation. He is speaking to each one of us in a way that only he can. 
And that is going to be different for you. It's going to be different for you, for you, and for me. I have two questions I want to challenge us with today. And I put myself in the same category because this challenges me daily. It challenges me seasonally. It challenges me every time I think about it. And the first question is this. What floor am I on that God is trying to release me from so that he can do a work in me? What floor am I on, to use the analogy from my prior store? Where am I stuck? Where am I crumbled? Where am I fallen? Where am I possibly apathetic? Where am I complacent? Where am I feeling like I've arrived and this initiative is for everyone else and I've got this figured out? What floor am I on that I cannot get up from that God is trying to release me from so that he can do a work in me, a work that is not yet finished? And secondly is this, what will unfinished generosity look like for me in this next season? Because here's the thing. This is about so much more than generosity. If our generosity, if there is not something that is behind this card, don't turn in a card. I'm so sorry I just said that. If this card doesn't mean something, if there's not something behind it that means an unfinished step of faith that is so significant that you're looking up at God and saying, I can make this commitment, but if I do, I'm going to change that honors him so much. And if that's not your story, then you're not there. And I want to challenge us, what will unfinished generosity look like for me in this season? Because you know what's crazy about life? Every single season is different. One season you have kids. The next season you're sending kids to college. This season you lost your job. This season you get a promotion. This season you're remodeling a bathroom. This season you have a flood. This season there's a fire. This season you're paying for your brother's rent. Every season of life is different. And so we're never finished asking God what he wants us to do. And nobody can identify that step of faith except you. No one can tell you what that's going to look like except you and the Lord. I'd like to do something a little different to close out our service today because I feel like the Lord is... um, is wanting to do and is doing an incredible work through LifePoint Church. And I cannot wait to see what the Lord does through this next season. The visions that you have are incredible. They're so incredible that it's just, it's an honor that we get to even, uh, my husband and I participate with you in them. But even more so than the unfinished people, the church, the future, even more so, I really do feel like God is going to create a revival in so many of our hearts that the Spirit of God is going to awaken us up off of the eighth floors that we are on. Some of us that are stuck, whether it is complacency or despair or defeat or discouragement or brokenness, and he wants to take us out of those. He wants us to open up wide the plan that he has for us. And so I'm going to ask you to do something. It might make some of you uncomfortable. I won't ask you to hold hands or to put arms on each other, but I am going to ask you to stand. And so at all of our locations, even online, if you are watching online, I want you to stand where you are. And at the screen, we are going to say our final prayer together, if you will. It's going to be on the screen. And I want us to be excited because, and and I don't want you to fabricate your excitement. So if you're not excited, don't fabricate anything. I want us to examine from the pits of our I I won't say bowels. I just said it. I just said bowels. That's like a word. I want us from the inner being that we have, the love that we first had when we were first saved, when we first were baptized. If you are someone who doesn't know the Lord yet, maybe the interest that you first had when you walked in these doors with that passion, I want us to pray this prayer. If you would, it's on the screen. God, 
give us a heart like Abraham, the ability to trust you, that you aren't finished with us yet. God, give us the generosity of the widow who gave all she had. God, give us the grace you gave the tax collector who told Jesus he wasn't giving as he should be, but that he truly wanted to change. God, give us the boldness you gave Peter and John to stand before the religious leaders and to tell them who Jesus is. God, give us the courage of a church on the move, a church who is passionate about helping more people connect with God, a church who seeks to live and give for you with all that we have. God, move in us and let us be a church who is unfinished. Amen and amen. Thanks, everyone.